Welcome to the Daily Objective. It's Friday, so it's the day we have with us Jason Rhymes. Jason is a senior research fellow, fellow at Montessorium, and every Friday he helps us navigate some philosophical topics that uh, are complex or difficult or interesting or all together. So today we're going to discuss anarchism. So quite often, whenever I'm in an objectivist conference, they're always in the audience, some young people from the libertarian movement, some young people who have just discovered the ideas of liberty, and they can't really, or sometimes they're uh, they're more committed than anarcho-capitalists, but they always have the same question. What's the big deal? What is our difference? Isn't the fact that we disagree on whether it's going to be some state or no state, isn't this something which is not very important. And of course, there's a lot of literature in objectives about why it is important. Now, this is a topic that has been dealt with many times, but today we're going to focus on one particular angle. We try to find the best arguments that anarchists have against what they would call minarchists. The term, I don't like it, but you get what it means. People who are in favor of a small state, we would call it a state that only supports individual rights. So we're going to find these good arguments and we're going to see what would be our reply to them. So we're trying to steal man the anarcho-capitalist arguments. So the number one complaint that anarchists have uh, is that... Let me just yeah. Let me just jump in and just say, so this is Nikos's um, choice of topic. I, I, I want to say at the outset, I have never really spent much time studying anarchism. Um, I know just a little bit, mostly by, you know, by secondhand account. Um, and so I'll, I'm going to just, I don't know if these are the best arguments for anarchism, but Nikos knows a lot more about this than I do. So let's just take it for granted for our purposes that these are relatively, he was trying to find strong arguments. These are the best ones he, he, he came up with today. And I mean, I can tell you what I think, but I, again, I approach this as somebody who's not given this much. This is an important clarification because the same applies to me. So here we are thinking out loud. So again, this is not objectivist okay. rebuttal of these arguments. This is me and Jameson and Jason thinking out loud about these points. So here's the first argument they always bring up. They say, look, you people, when you want to attack anarchism, you bring up the example of Somalia, that Somalia is an example of anarchism. And as a situation where there is no central state and there are fighting gangs and fighting tribes. And they say, this is a very, very cheap shot because we are thinking of a different kind of anarchist. We're different of a kind of anarchist where it is peaceful, where the, the, the corporation, so to speak, who have as their duty and as their job to secure order actually do their job. So they say by bringing up Somalia, it's as if someone saying, look, having a state is what Nazi Germany or what Soviet Union looks like, therefore checkmate uh, small state people. So, and this has also, this argument has also an expansion which says that, could you people name me one time in history where your small or minimal or minarchist or individual rights respecting state has existed. Therefore, if your thing has never existed, why do you tell us that our thing could never exist and it could be Somalia? So do you have any take on that, Jason? Yeah, sure. So 
my first take is that this is, I think, more of a counter argument um, against a criticism of, of anarchism than an argument perhaps proper, but it's really the best system. It's more along the lines of you bring up the following examples, um, those are not us. Um, a kind of no true Scotsman type of argument. Now, mm -hmm. the first thing to observe here is that this is not unique to anarchism. Um, a lot of political philosophies use this very, and even moral philosophies use this very same tactic. So it's easy enough to kind of say, well, I've read Plato's Republic. I think Plato is a totalitarian and, and here's why. And then someone says, yeah, but the way he writes it, none of, no force is going to be necessary. Everybody's, everybody's in the city is kind of committed to the rule of these philosopher kings. There's no objections. And similarly, you could say, sure. I mean, like, you know, it's not fair to bring up Stalinism as a rebuke of communism because, you know, the way Marx and Engels pictured it, it would work in this other way. And so the first thing I think we have to figure is that there are, there are two sort of aspects of a kind of political philosophy here that are distinct. One is a kind of view about, is a series of arguments and claims about human nature, about ethics, um, about how the state ought to function. And those arguments succeed or, 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 or fail. Then there's secondly, what is this, what is a theory formulated in the terms you formulated in? What does that end up looking like in practice? Now, it may be that some theories, just given A, human nature, and B, the way they are formulated, cannot actually be put into practice in the way that their advocates believe or hope they will be. So it may be that like, just because of how humans work, just because of how the world works, you will never get a peaceful, you will never get a non-coercive communist state. It can't work. It will, or it is too open to the following things. So I take it that if, I take it that if anarchists say something like, what we picture is this nonviolent thing, um, then the answer is, well, that's great, but that's what you picture. Do you have any reason for believing that having that won't descend? Let's, let's assume, even if it's not really true, let's assume that you could get to that state. What keeps it that way? What prevents it from devolving back into uh, gang or tribal warfare or civil war, right? So let's, we have this peaceful um, thing where different people, there's no central power or state. Nobody has a monopoly on force okay, uh, of retaliatory force. Okay, no one has a monopoly on retaliatory force. Um, that, that presumably means that I can perhaps initiate force without the risk of a state or a massive police force taking me down. And maybe many people wouldn't do that. Many people are prudent enough, but not everybody. So why don't I do that? And if I do do that, what, and there's no state or there isn't allowed to be a state, what recourse does someone else have other than arming up his gang and fighting back in their way and getting me before I get them? So that's just to say that I think if you, you take the theory, you, you, one way to do this, it does, I'm not sure this always works, but one way to do this is imagine you have the ideal situation that their theory envisions. Again, I think that's giving them more than they deserve, but just imagine it and then ask, how would you keep it? What would prevent that from being maintained? Why wouldn't it just collapse 
into this thing we fear. Similarly, you have a bunch of philosopher kings um, and their successors are just not these incredibly wise, incredibly benevolent rulers who know the good and rule you know, selflessly, et cetera. What if they're, in fact, Plato even imagines this situation. Yeah, it would degenerate really fast and it would be horrible. I mean, look, even, even if they are as benevolent as you think, them being able to tell you how to live is pretty awful anyhow. And so lastly, the claim of, well, uh, hey, you don't, have, um, you don't have instances of your political system. Um, well, look, uh, maybe we do, maybe we don't. I think there's variation in the more and the less. And so you can say there are situations where you have less of the kind of government we find obtrusive but enough of the kind of government we, we consider necessary and good. And when you have something that approaches enough of, the enough of the good kinds of government functions and few enough of the bad malfunctions, what you find is really good. And that's enough. And then you can say, and so, and as you have less of this or more of that, uh, uh, it gets worse. As you have more of this and less of that, it gets better. Um, that doesn't mean that there's no amount of the good functions. It means that there's a certain amount of absolutely of the good functions and a certain minimum of, or, or an elimination of the malfunctions. Right. And uh, I will give this point to the anarchists as opposed to the communists. So at least they can describe how what you said this utopia would look like, whereas with the communists is not the case. Okay, second point. Can they really though? I mean, do they really? Well, they would say- I, I think we... they probably can. There's some amount of it, just because um, you know what a world would look like, um, at least a kind of scientifically or industrially advanced world would look like without property rights or, or without private property, I should say, is pretty hard um, to kind of picture. Um, I mean, well, you do have certain status examples, but, um, or, but what it would be, uh, um, but, um, you know, um, how this peaceful arrangement would work, how private security firms would operate peacefully. Um, they say it. I, I don't know that they can really picture it. Um, and, and yeah, anyway. So let's go then to the second point, which is related to this. Why would you trust the police to find who robbed your house or who stole your car, which usually they don't, I mean, no one cares anyway from the police. Why would you trust them more than Apple? So the anarchists would say, the problem with you, Jason, is you lack imagination. Would you imagine how more effective law and order would be if those in charge were Amazon, Apple, or a Google, like a Google police or something, or something like that. So in the same way you subscribe to Amazon Prime and you get an excellent service, you'd, sub you'd subscribe to Amazon police. You'd like press a panic button and a drone would be by your house in five seconds. And, or if someone hit you, you'd have like cameras uh, on your glasses and then they would find him within five minutes or things like that. So what would be your reply to that? That law and order would be way, 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 way more efficient. So, okay, um, I think there are a couple arguments here. The first argument is that people have individual rights, uh, whether or not they hold a subscription 
So people sometimes talk about, you know, if you have a private firefighting company, would they have to come to your house or something like that? And it might be that, you know, you have just a kind of agreement with anybody living in a certain area with the local, you know, with government and so on that, um, you know, the firefighters can't turn down a kind of call for help, but if they come, they can charge you a certain rate, you know, it would have to be worked out. But in the case of police, um, a police person seeing you getting mugged doesn't get to first check whether you've made a donation to the benevolent brotherhood of policemen and then decide whether to protect you. You have certain rights the government has to protect them. And without those, it, I, I think the, situ the situation would be dire and quite terrible. And there's, and you know, Apple doesn't have that um, responsibility. Um, another, another way to put it is, um, a government has a certain moral responsibility to defend individual rights. Um, and there may be certain things that the government can demand a certain kind of charge for or something like that to raise basic revenue for its operation. But there are other things that it just, it, it, it can't sort of hold that over you. So that's the first thing um, about just why I don't think it's the right kind of entity. The second thing is you can ask yourself how well do companies you know, police themselves in a variety of ways where, um, where they have a legal responsibility already, um, not just criminally, but also in, in terms of civil responsibilities. Um, now, again, this is against the background of the government that ought to be doing some of the policing here, but there are various places where com companies are sort of free to self-police and they're clearly prudential and decent things they ought to do. Maybe they don't have to do, but, but it would be in their long-term interest and it would also be in decent. And many of them don't do it. Um, and, and, you know, like companies are not omniscient. They don't always know what's in their interest. They don't always know what would be the best thing for their, um, for, uh, for retaining or building kind of customers, let alone taking care of them. And the last thing I would say is, yeah, maybe you shouldn't trust the police where you are. Maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. It, it, it's no guarantee. There's no reason that a government can't be corrupt. The problem is ideally it's possible for a police system that has public accountability um, that is protecting the right kinds of law or enforcing the right kinds of laws as right kinds of selection relatively I think decent in theory decent and um, and uh, non-prejudicial um, arbiters of justice, or at least of, of kind of protection security. What's not possible in principle is for your private company that you hire to establish justice. So the, the problem is not, so the issue is not, oh, can you really trust police? The issue is rather, why would anyone trust the company you're paying to investigate me, trust them to be fair to me rather than to you who is paying them? In other words, this is just a kind of extension of an argument that Locke gives in the second treatise that, that um, the reason, one reason we turn to government rather than the state of nature, Locke thinks the rights and the principles involved are, are there in a the state of nature, but the problem is, is that we on our own kind of given to partial justice are not the best are not the best arbiters of justice and retaliation 
you murder my mom. Maybe I have a moral right to, to stop you from hurting other people in my family. But am I really the person who should make the decision about how much punishment that is and how to best achieve it? And, you know, no, some neutral third party should be that. Now, if the chief of police happens to be your brother-in-law, we might have a problem, but then we have, but then we have various laws and mechanisms of, for conflict of interest for, for the government. And, and I think those would have to come into effect. Again, it's not that the police can't be corrupt. It's that they have the, they can be non-corrupt. They can be a neutral third party or mediator who has to follow certain rules. Whereas if I hire you to do a job, ideally you're gonna do the best job. And it might be that there's profit in Apple behaving like a police in a regular country, but it might be that there's more profit for them in being mercenaries. And, and here's the other thing that this example or argument typically forgets. We have to imagine that Apple is not Apple, which is a country, which is a corporation that is based in the United States, which mostly for a while, for, uh, for a little while yet at least has the rule of law. This would be some kind of organization in a country without laws and without government. And why should we expect that that security company would behave in the kind of sane, long-term thinking way that Apple does in a, in, under a government? In other words, Apple as a private security firm in no man's land in an anarchy has to operate the way a consortium of force, you know, Apple force, the way a consortium force would in anarchy which is to say they would gang up, they would build fortresses, they would, you know, they would not, you know, try to make, you know, have customer signed agreements and EULAs and all that because that, there's no government agencies to fall back on. So I think that's the most important thing. Private companies in anarchy look very, very, would probably look very, very different and they would not be, as reasonable as and law abiding or order oriented as companies that exist in a system of government. And also something to follow up on that is that, and again, this is me, this is not the objectivist line. This is Nico saying out loud. Nothing would prevent you even in a having, when having a government to have private security. So for example, bodyguards, uh, Uh, investigators, but they should not. They would not be able to breach someone else's rights. So, for example, someone stole your car. Your the investigator would find that person, or your bodyguard will have the right to defend you even with force if the police is not anywhere inside. So, nothing would stop you to do that. What they would stop you to do is take the law quote in your own hands in terms of. As you said, oh, you harm me, now I'm going to gouge out both your eyes, for example, because now you have no right, which is a bit in, in, not miles away from what happens in Sharia law, for example, where if you are harmed, you have the right to say, okay, that person dies or that person does not, uh, does not die. So let me then bring to another argument, which is 
the anarchists will say all the things that you accuse us of, which is, let's say, gangs taking over, has also happened with, uh, with the state. So, for example, and I'm not taking extremes like Nazism. So when the radical left was in power in Greece, there was a moment in time where my father was paying something equivalent to 70% of his income in taxes, 70-70. So you, ha you had this type of situation. So again, they would say, look, at the end of the day, if you have reasonable people, anarchists will work. If you have reasonable people, you will have an objectivist, uh, sorry, you will have a society where the state only protects individual rights as you objectivists uh, believe. So at the end of the day, isn't it basically the same question? How can we get to a place where we have a critical mass of people who want a peaceful society where we respect each other's rights? And therefore, this, whether then we're going to have a state or whether we're going to have two perfectly reasonable uh, uh, security companies. One is going to be the Jason and the other is going to be, I don't know, the Yaron company. So reasonable people, rights-respecting people. So at the end of the day, it all comes down to having, uh, changing the culture so that the critical mass eschews these ideas. So what's your take in that? So I'm not sure I completely understand the argument. Once again, I kind of think it's a, a bit of a counter argument or kind of anarchism on the defensive. In other words, I, I imagine an argue, argument for anarchism to be something along the lines of all governments are wrong. Here are the reasons why we should have anarchism or something along the lines of all governments are liabilities in the following way. Anarchism would work best. I think it's a little bit more like this would work best. But again, I, what I heard and the last thing you sort of said was something along the lines of it would work if people were rational. Um, well, um, you might think just about anything would be better the more people were rational because rational people are better and they do less bad and more good. Um, but you might also say that rational people wouldn't do certain things and would do others or are less likely to do certain things and are more likely to do others. The real question comes down to which is a more rational system? Because if we assume people are rational enough, we can assume that they'll be rational enough to have a reasonable system. And so the question is, is no government a reasonable system or, or reasonable absence of system? Or is that unreasonable for human beings to try to exist without law and without a state? And um, so I, I think that just kind of kicks it back, kicks the question back another step. Um, I do think that, um, you know, um, you used to see, you know, like um, some anarcho-capitalists make sort of economic argument. And by the way, I think that's a contradiction in terms. I don't think capital, I think capitalism is a system of individual rights, including property rights. I don't think anarchism, I don't think is a system of, of, of Right. Some people get to anarchism by kind of reifying and taking all the context away out of property rights and just kind of make it this absolute. But in any case, I don't actually think anarcho-capitalism is a thing uh, is is makes sense as a term. But in any case, some anarcho-capitalists would make the argument that the market would market forces in a, an anarchist situation would mitigate against, indeed, would just strongly discourage. Um, initiation, of course. You would have private security companies. Private security companies would be looking at their bottom line. 
that what they know is that co armed conflicts are very, very expensive in terms of labor and training and so on. Um, and, and so um, they just wouldn't do it. And um, two things, one, um, how do you know? Um, how do you know that there wouldn't be some, you know, private security um, innovator who says, actually, if we just cut our costs enough, it makes a lot of sense for us to kill the other guys. Like we just have to be, we just have to be get better at getting child soldiers because they're really cheap and will do what they say. Guns that are easy to shoot for them to use and like strategic info information about where to ambush our enemies. And if we do that, like the cost of losses isn't that big. There are more kids all the time. The guns are, you know, there's 300 million guns left from when America used to have a government. And, you know, it's easy, right? Why wouldn't they do that? Um, especially because like once we're the only game in town, like we get everything um, is how they might reason. And like everything is the whole pie. So that's much better. Um, similar, um, similarly, you know, just look at what's come about in behavioral economics. Um, yes, uh, this idealized rational market agent um, would behave in certain ways with perfect availability of information, perfectly um, self-transparent um, preferences, which form, um, you know, well-ordered sets um, and, and so on. And, and they would do these things. And then, you know, economists bothered to actually look at people after decades and, and centuries even and realized, oh wait, people don't do that. Or a lot of people don't do that. So I think it's fair to say that any system has to um, plan for the eventuality that many people, hopefully not a majority, but many people will behave irrationally in various ways and, pre and prepare to protect and insulate those who are rational from those who are not, or at least from those who are violently irrational, if not- Let me, sorry, let me ask a question on this. So in a current system though, what would stop these many rational people of voting in a communist government or a leftist government or whatever, a state's government, and then suddenly you lose everything? Well, so first off, there are, you know, there are levels of implementation. Um, so, and this, is, and this is a combination of, of mores or customs on the one hand and constitutional law. So on, first of all, um, depending on the constitution, some are, it's easier or harder to change certain laws. There are laws of laws and laws governing the change of laws. Um, and so in some cases, like even uh, if you voted in a communist, they couldn't change everything overnight or, or they couldn't get away with changing everything overnight because you have sufficiently strong customs or mores um, that prevent them from just breaking all the rules. I mean, leges sine moribus vanis, right? So like uh, law, laws without morals are empty. And so, you know, like we have a bunch of election laws, but if like everyone in the Republican party decides, yeah, who gives a fuck? Um, we'll just lie and say it was stolen and then make phony electors. And then re remember that the like five ultra conservative justices at the Supreme Court will approve this anyway, because they're in our gang. I mean, at a certain point, if there aren't enough people along the way, people of conscience, including, you know, like say some Republicans in Georgia who stop Trump stealing efforts, you don't have that, then yeah, they'll take over, right? Like these are human institutions, nothing makes them invulnerable. 
Certainly nothing makes an institution invulnerable against human irrationality and evil. That, that very fact undercuts or undermines it. But just because institutions are corruptible doesn't mean that they're not necessary. It may be that certain institutions are necessary for human flourishing and they can be mis, just as we need them as against not having them at all. So we need them in a certain way and not in other ways. It may be that, the, it may even be that the worst kinds of mis, misgovernance are worse than the worst kinds of anarchy. You know, arguably- The Holocaust is an obvious example. Right, right. Or, or being in North Korea today. Arguably, you know, being in Somalia is better than being in North Korea. I don't know. They might be equally horrible. I don't know. I, I'd leave it open to debate. The point is, um, that doesn't change the fact that you might need some government and not um, others. You started off by, by pointing out that some of these young students who come in and they're interested in theories of liberty, some come by way of libertarianism or economic approaches to capitalism and they're interested in objectivism. And they say something like, you know, there's so little, there's so little state that you, know, you sort of believe in, why do you still have any of it left or, or what's the difference? And you know, that's, that's, sort of like, that's sort of like an atheist in a, living in a polytheistic culture, like in India or ancient Greece, an atheist looking at some early monotheist, some Christian or Jew and going, you know, you get rid of so many gods. You get rid of Zeus, you get rid of Athena, you get rid of Apollo. I mean, aren't you basically just an atheist like me? What do you need this one last God for? And to the monotheist, it's like, what are you talking about? That's the most important thing of all, right? Um, that's that's a good example. I'm not. I'm in other words. I'm not a monotheist or even a henotheist. You believe in one God, not necessarily the only one, because I don't believe in gods or don't believe that gods are important. I just don't believe in this plethora of gods, and I think that's all messed up and that's idolatry. But there's one true God. Again, I'm not. I'm an atheist. I'm with the atheist here. But I, what I'm not with is the atheist thinking that there's that there isn't a principal difference between the monotheist. Uh, uh, and, and himself relative to the polytheist. It's just the opposite. The, in, in most respects, a poly, well, monotheism is different from polytheism in, in more than just numerical terms. It's not just like monotheism is polytheism with every God but one removed. It is its own creature, but nevertheless, it is not just a stone's throw away from atheism. It's not at all. And similarly, I don't think, say the objectivist view is just the stone's throw away from anarchism. Um, I've even heard some objectivists say, and I think this is well put, that you know when people argue like we don't want, um, you know, we want to reduce the the size of government, and you might say, or the or the strength of government, and you might say, no, we want a strong government. We want a government. You might even say as big as necessary. We just want to reduce its scope, right? So we should have a, as big a military as we need to defend ourselves from our actual enemies. We should have as many, you know, judges as are necessary to hear trials, right? Um, hopefully that won't be too many, but it may have to be a significant number. What we don't want is that army to defending a country not worth saving and those judges ruling on laws that never should have been passed and those cops enforcing laws that basically punish their citizens and turn the cops into, you know, military occupation on their own home soil. 
So that's, you know, I, I I'm, I'm impressed, Jason, because you said I'm not an expert, but you gave examples that I've been dealing, I've been thinking this issue since I found out about libertarians around 2013-14, actually before I found out about objection, particularly the one about uh, monotheism and theism. That was an excellent example. That, that uh, landed the argument for me, so thank you for that. Okay, let's go to Super Chat because, as we said, today is going to be a relatively short episode. So, thank you very much, Marilyn. I appreciate so much every time how much you support us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. As we, same applies to you. Thank you for your constant support. So, Philosophical Zombie Hunter asks, actually points out, Adam Mosov pointed out that anarchists do not want IP rights. By the way, that's correct. They don't want That would hurt innovation and wealth and make anarchy societies poor and primitive. So do you want to give a 20-second version about IP rights and what's our main difference with that? And I'll come back with a book recommendation, which is the moment now. Yeah, so, so I'll be back in 10 seconds, but I can't yeah. hear you. So some, some anarchists um, kind of get into what they're defending um, through a libertarian conception or perhaps even misconception of property rights or rights of liberty. And, and then kind of work their way backwards of, if it's my property, why shouldn't I be allowed to do this? And if I have property rights, why shouldn't I be allowed to own a tank or you know, an aircraft carrier or whatever? Um, and, but then you know it's typical, but I think with most um, anarchists that once you get to sort of like intellectual property, why can't I just take this music and so on? Or, um, Uh, suddenly, where did the property rights go? Because intellectual property rights um, are perhaps more abstract, or perhaps because this is a place where you know most most reasonably intellectual and not too antisocial kind of people um, kind of they they say, oh, I, well, I'm not looking to murder someone for their wallet, right? Like, uh, and 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 so I don't think that my no government state would have that. But yeah, I want to download that movie, like. Of course, and what's the harm, right? Um, or something like that. And I just think it's an example, either perhaps inconsistency or just, yeah, there's your true colors. I mean, it's like, turns out most, you know, people don't, most people don't want to be pirates, thieves, and murderers. Um, but most people don't mind being IP pirates. Um, and so, you know, that's just not something they're building into their picture of do whatever you want. Right. Makes sense. Or so, whatever you can get away with. And I, you mentioned that we are not experts. So I would recommend, if people are particularly interested in this topic, there's a collection of essays on the differences between objectivism and libertarianism, including and anarchism, including discussions with some actual uh, libertarians and anarchists. So Check out the book Foundations of a Free Society, uh, The Reflections on Ayn Rand's Political Philosophy. It's edited by Greg Salmieri and Robert Mayhew, and it dives deep in all these issues that we have, uh, that we have covered. So it's really, it's really excellent. I especially recommend the kind of three-part piece from, from Daryl Wright, um, which converted an old course he gave me, uh, a few decades, two decades ago. Uh, it, it's, it's, really, uh, it's really great. So on these three three essays by Daryl Wright. When I was writing the tribalist book and I had to understand a bit more something around free speech, uh, the, these were my go-to essays. I don't remember exactly how I went there, but 
they're very, very good. These and uh, Tara's uh, essay, the free speech uh, vernacular. Thank you very much, Shruti, for the 100 Indian rupees. Thank you very much. No idea how much this is worth, but thanks a lot for your contribution. She says, thanks for the interesting conversation. Thank you, Shruti. And thanks again to Marilyn. I hope you have uh, our appreciation and thank you for your constant support. Okay, coming up, 10 p.m. UK time. The TV talk on Station 11 with Mark Pellegrino, Jennifer Buani, and Jacqueline Schumann. So that's all from us. Uh, I'm catching a plane to Georgia to get with Yaron and give a all-day conference on financial, on anyway, on interesting things. So if you're in Georgia or if you're anywhere near, we're going to be in Tbilisi this weekend. Jason, you also need to go back to a conference or a or something, uh, fight, still fighting the battle of ideas. So thanks, everyone. We're going to be back with Jason next Friday. Have a good weekend.